0: Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read our sermon text. You can turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm going to read from verse 2 to verse 7. Then I'll pray for our time together, and we'll jump into the text. I'll be reading from the ESV. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden. And the staff of his shoulder for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When you pray with me real quick? Father, we do want to ask that you would help us now as we give our attention to your word. Would you fill us with your spirit and give us eyes to see your glory in the text? Would you move our hearts to respond with the proper affection and allegiance to Christ our King and to his kingdom? We pray that you would do this for the good of this church, for the good of your gospel in Hawaii Kai, and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you have ever been out on a storm, out on sea, in a storm, you know that it can be scary. Not just scary, but it can be disorienting and discombobulating. And for most of us, if we're honest, that's really what the last two years have kind of felt like. Like all of us have been trying to navigate through unique and unprecedented difficulties that have led to, honestly, all kinds of uncertainty, all kinds of confusion, and truthfully, all kinds of dissension. It's like everybody in this storm got dumped overboard and then just started clamoring and clawing at one another, just trying to keep our heads above water, and you don't have to look very far to see this. You open your social media feed, or for those of you that are not on social media, you open your newspaper, and it's filled with controversy. It's filled with slander. And it's filled with all kinds of self-righteous snobbery. And Christians haven't been immune to any of this. And on top of that, The wickedness of our world has continued on as normal. It's not like the wickedness of our world saw the last two years and said, hey, man, it's been a tough time. We're going to take a break. We're going to chill out. We're going to kind of get ourselves together. No, that's not what's happened. Among all of this confusion and uncertainty, the wickedness of the world has just gone on as usual. Billionaires and political leaders facilitating and participating in sex trafficking, laws, criminalizing attempts to convert the LGBTQ community, abortion advocates mocking the murder of their own unborn children. And Christians all around the world, in Southeast Asia, in Somalia, in Afghanistan, are being persecuted for their faithfulness to Christ. Beloved, as you observe all of these things, something should be happening deep within your soul. As you observe our world and everything going on around us, it should create with you a kind of longing, a longing for a world where true and unhindered justice and righteousness and peace will flourish forever. The problem is, as you start to feel these longings for these things, you can start to look for answers in all kinds of places, in anything and everything but in Christ and in his kingdom. But what you need to know this morning is that the peace that you long for It will not come ultimately through greater political or social leaders, no matter how unifying they might be, no matter how charismatic they might be. It won't come through having just the right common sense socioeconomic policies and reforms. It's not going to come through securing the finest education or the best jobs or the sweetest homes or finding that next big business investment or that perfect soulmate or more obedient children, or maybe more satisfying career options. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. If I just had this, if we could just get that, then I could finally live righteously. I could finally practice more justice. I could finally enjoy the peace that my soul is longing for. beloved what we find in the bible particularly in our text this morning in Isaiah chapter 9 is that the true peace lasting righteousness and justice is available to everyone but it will not ultimately come by the strength of your might it will not come through the goodness of your own morality It will not come through the wisdom of your plans or the improvement of your temporal circumstances. That's not where your hope this morning should be rooted, beloved. Your hope this morning must be firmly rooted and placed in Christ and in his kingdom. And honestly, as I've thought about you, Hawaii Kai Church, this has been my prayer. So this has been my prayer for you as we open up Isaiah chapter 9, that in our present distress, in the midst of your present dark circumstances, that your hope would be strengthened, that your hope would be recalibrated and reoriented to focus on Christ and his kingdom. So in order to do that, I want to show you from our text, I want to show you three truths. And I'll give them to you right up front for for those of you that are taking notes. The three truths I want to draw out from our text is first, the salvation of God's people in verses two to five. Second, the advent of God's king in verse six. And third, the establishment of God's kingdom in verse seven. So let's jump right into this. The first truth I want to show you from Isaiah chapter 9 is the salvation of God's people. Now, before we understand this, we have to really understand that Isaiah's ministry came in a very tumultuous time in Israel's history. They were filled with all kinds of idolatry. All kinds of corruption and division and rebellion against the Lord and against his word. And on top of all of that, they were constantly threatened by foreign superpowers that were so much greater than themselves. And so they have all of this inner turmoil and then they have all of this outside external threats coming upon them. And that is when the Lord sends his word through the prophet Isaiah to speak to them. And in chapter 8, verse 17, just a couple verses prior to our text, you know what we're told? We're told that God has hidden his face from Israel. It's just a metaphorical way to say that God has withheld his blessing from them. He's withheld his protection from them. And what this tells you, is that all of the years and years and years and decades of Israel's rebellion against the Lord and his word, it has never at any time gone unnoticed by God. We might be able to hide our sin. We might be able to manage our sin for a little while. We might be able to get away with it for a time. But nothing ever is really hidden from God's sight. He always sees. He always hears. He always knows. And he will always execute justice. And beloved, that's exactly what he's doing here in Isaiah chapter 9. In chapter 8, verses 21 to 22, it describes God's judgment as God giving Israel over to their enemies, specifically by sending them into exile. And their experience of this judgment is described as darkness. It's described as distress. It's described as anguish, and hunger, and nakedness, and misery. And that is the the context of our text this morning. Israel is in a really, really bad place. And then we come to chapter 9. And guys, what we find here in chapter 9 is a significant turn of events. What we find in chapter 9 is that God's salvation has come to God's people. And this salvation experience is really radically different from their experience of God's judgment. And this future salvation is for all God's people. This includes Jews and Gentiles, which will fully be realized in the new covenant to come. So let's see what God says about this future salvation. First, what we find is that darkness will be turned to light, look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them, light has shone. And so, what we're seeing is that as the light of God's salvation shines on His people, you know what it does? It lifts from them all of the darkness of their sin, it raises up from them all of the darkness of God's judgment. Those who once lived in the shadow of death, that's another way that this deep darkness could be translated. Those who once lived, abided, dwelt in the shadow of death, will now walk in the light of God's glory and His grace when salvation comes. Not only that, but sorrow will be turned to joy. Look at verse 3 You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so God's people are no longer going to be overcome by sorrow and gloom and distress. God will create in His people, when salvation comes an uncontainable, inexpressible, overflowing joy that's not just rooted in their circumstances. They rejoice before God. Their joy is in God. And not just any kind of joy, but joy at the harvest. It's like a farmer on Maui and Kula. We've had a drought. And those farmers have been waiting for rain. And it's like God brings this massive rain. And then now they have this massive crops that they're harvesting. And they're rejoicing because they can't contain it. It's like when a king goes to battle over an enemy that threatens his people and he not only slaughters them, but he brings all of the spoils of a, a victory through every town and every city and he unloads all of the spoils of victory on his people because he has conquered and the people see it and receive it and they're filled with joy. That's what Isaiah is describing. Not only that, Lastly, what we find is that when God's salvation comes, all oppression, all strife will be turned to freedom and to peace. Look at verse 4 and 5. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his depressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Beloved, God is exceedingly greater. He is infinitely more powerful and authoritative than any one of his enemies he's the lion they're the mouse he's the hammer they're the the clay he's the sun they're the candle he's Haleakala and they're the anthill and he will crush every one of his enemies and when he does this he will deliver his people from every oppressor all strife will cease on that day war will be over but it won't just be over It will never be necessary ever again. All the materials of war will be burned once and for all. God will triumph, and he will usher in eternal, everlasting peace for his people. Did you notice that Isaiah speaks of God's future salvation as something that has already been accomplished? He speaks about this as if these things have already happened. Why is that? Beloved, it's because God wants you to know that these things are absolutely certain they're a hundred percent guarantee this isn't guy hoggy standing up on the afternoon news telling you about the hurricane that's coming or as we like to call him here well some of us lie hoggy this isn't lie hoggy standing up and predicting the weather This is money in the bank. This is going to happen. As sure as God has judged his people, God will deliver his people from all of his enemies and bring in everlasting peace. He will save every one of his people. And this is something that God unilaterally does. God is the victor. God is the deliverer. God is the peacemaker. God is the joy giver. God shines light on those in darkness. And his people, all they have to do is receive it and walk in it and believe God will be God and he will fulfill every one of his promises. This is an amazing picture of salvation. And so if this is the salvation that God has promised to his people, the question that you should ask yourself as you read this text is, so how are you going to do it? How is God going to accomplish this magnificent, mind-blowing salvation for his people? That's the second thing I want to show you in our text. The advent of God's King. Look at verse six and read it in light of everything that we just saw. Verse six, for to us, a child is born. For to us, a son is given. Do you realize, beloved, what Isaiah is saying here? The way that God, the way that God turns our darkness into light the way that God turns your sorrow into joy and gladness, the way that God ushers in eternal, everlasting peace and removes all oppression and strife from his people is through this child. All of the salvation promises that God has given to his people rest on the birth of this child. For to us, a child is born. For to us, a son. Is given. And that should ring in your ears, producing great joy and confidence. If God is going to save anybody, this child must come to us. But what would have really blown the minds of Isaiah's original listeners? are the qualities that are attributed to this child. You see, this child is no ordinary child. What we find here is that he is the promised divine king. He's God's king. Look at verse six. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name, all that he is. You guys know the name of someone in the Bible? His character, all that he is, all that he does, his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, this king will have authority and power to rule over all things. And as we'll see in the next verse, what it means by the government resting on his shoulders is that he isn't just going to be any kind of king with any kind of government. He's going to be king over all creation. You know, there's been some really impressive rulers and kings and conquerors. I didn't like a lot of subjects in school. Favorite one was P.E., but I loved the subject of history because they had all these stories about conquerors that would come and just take over and just rule with power and authority. And when I was young, I thought that was super cool, right? So there's been all kinds of kings throughout history. Kamehameha was a great conquering, mighty warrior king. But the authority and power of God's king, beloved, will surpass every king that has ever come before him. But even with all of this power, even with all of this authority, he's not going to be like any other ruler. He's not going to be like you and I if I had all of this power and authority. He's not going to rule as a selfish, vindictive, heavy-handed tyrant. His power and authority... Will always be exercised according to his divine perfections. Notice, this is why he'll be the wonderful counselor. That's also could be translated as the supernatural counselor. He'll possess infinite wisdom and he'll know all things and he'll see all things clearly and perfectly as they are there's no confusing this king there's no tricking this king or deceiving him he'll never be stumped by any situation he'll never be dumbfounded by any circumstance his wisdom will make even the most skilled counselor sound like a babbling fool And the crazy thing is, he's not going to hoard all of this wisdom. He's not going to be stingy with his wisdom. But instead, he will generously, lavishly, freely give wisdom and counsel to all his people. And this will result in his kingdom and all those in it being transformed and marked by his supernatural Wonderful, divine wisdom. Notice, he'll be mighty God. And this is a title in the Old Testament reserved for Yahweh alone, the one true and living God of Israel, the maker of heaven and earth, the mighty creator and sustainer of the universe. And so he won't just rule in the place of God like kings of past but he will rule as God. A divine, mighty warrior king, like we see throughout Isaiah, who will deliver his people and conquer his enemies. Not only that, but he'll be an everlasting father. He'll exude father-like care and love. Now, you moms and dads, you know what that parental love looks like. You know the affection and the care and the consideration and the thoughtfulness and the concern that you have for your children. That's the kind of love that this king is going to have for every single person in his kingdom. He's not up in his castle. He's down below with the people. Walking the streets, knowing what's going on, where can I serve, what do they need, how can I protect them, how can I love them? A father-like king who will tenderly, sacrificially, affectionately provide and protect and nourish and discipline and lead all those in his kingdom the way a father leads his children. Lastly, he'll be Prince of Peace, the Prince of Peace. And guys, that, that's because he is the only one. He's, we have this running joke in my family. It's not in my notes, but I'm going to tell it to you. We have this running joke in the Miller family. We watched a debate between David Ige and Andrew Tupola, and Ige always said, I am the only one. And that was his line every single time, saying, I am the only one, and makes all these promises. And that's what politicians do. But really, Jesus is the only one who will ever make good on every promise. Because he's the only one who's able and has the power and authority to bring true peace. Peace that endures. Not for four years, not for eight years, not for a decade. Peace that endures. The peace that you need most. Peace with your maker. And peace with your neighbor. And what we find as you go throughout Isaiah and you go several chapters more down to Isaiah 53 the way that this child, this king, accomplishes peace is through suffering. He conquers through death, he delivers through dying in the place of his people for them. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. This king will come as the suffering servant to remove your sin, to bring you peace through his death. So how does God save his people? He does it through this child. The eternal son who existed with God and was God before all things began. He must come to us. Not just as God, but as man. The promised Emmanuel that we saw two chapters earlier in chapter 7. God with us, God incarnate, God in the flesh. True divinity wrapped in true humanity. If there's ever any hope of salvation, God's king must step into your world. And a little more than 600 years after Isaiah penned this prophecy, an angel appeared to Mary and he declared in Luke chapter 1, Verse 31 to 33, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, he will be mighty, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And beloved, that's exactly, that is exactly what happened. God stepped into human history, and he Entered the womb of the Virgin Mary. Jesus, beloved, is the wonderful counselor. Jesus is mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, and Christ has indeed come for his people. He's come to shine light on your darkness, He's come to deliver you from the power of your sin. He's come to save you from judgment that you deserved. He's come to lead his church, indeed this church, into victory, to everlasting peace. And so this morning, it doesn't matter who you are. It does not matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've experienced. It does not matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you slept last night or who you slept with last night. Today, if you trust in Christ, you will know Christ as Savior and King. And God is calling you this morning to trust in the divine Son. Beloved, God saves his people through Christ. And in doing so, he establishes his kingdom. That's the last thing I want to show you in this text. The establishment of God's kingdom. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will do this. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God made a covenant with David. And he promised to make David's name great. And he promised that he would establish his throne and his kingdom forever by raising up a son or a descendant after him. And when Jesus stepped on the scene, Matthew began his gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Mary. That's not what it says. It says, the son of God. No, that's not what it says. It says, the son of David. Luke begins his gospel, chapter 1, verse 33, with Gabriel declaring to Mary, the Lord God will give him, that's Jesus, the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end Beloved, Jesus isn't just the son of God or the son of Mary. He's the son of David. And through his resurrection, through his exaltation into glory, to the right hand of God, Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant. He establishes his throne and ushers in his kingdom forever. But he didn't do this in the way that most Jews expected. He didn't come and he didn't overthrow Rome. He didn't come and establish a physical kingdom in Judea, in Jerusalem. Jesus established a spiritual kingdom. A kingdom with no geographical bounds. A kingdom with no national borders or no ethnic or cultural limitations. A kingdom whose power and authority will know know no end. And its influence and its effect will only increase more and more as more people come to faith In Christ the King. And so, where do you find Christ's kingdom on earth? It's a spiritual kingdom. Where do you find it? You go where his people are. You go where his people are. Every faithful church all around the world is an embassy or an outpost of Christ's kingdom here on earth. And so what this means is that no matter how small we are, no matter how weak we feel, no matter how oppressed we may be, no matter how imperfect we might follow Christ our King, every faithful congregation is a clear representation of the kingdom of Jesus here on earth. That's what you are here in Hawaii Kai. For everyone to see, everyone that knows your life and knows your witness, you are proclaiming that you are Christ and that Christ is your king, hoi kai. But notice his kingdom, it isn't established through corruption. It wasn't established through oppression. It isn't built on scheming and backdoor wheeling and dealing. Christ's kingdom is founded on incorruptible righteousness. His kingdom is governed by indestructible justice, and that's because there is no king. Righteous and just like Jesus. And he transforms all those in his kingdom to be a holy and upright and just people. Isaiah says, This kingdom is established from this time forth and forevermore. Now, some of you guys know that know me know that I'm a LeBron fan. Don't like me about that. That's okay. We have other things in common. But LeBron James, honestly, has had an unprecedented 18-year reign over the NBA. And his, his 18-year reign hasn't been mediocre. It's been a reign of greatness. But as you watch him, you start to see decline. He's not attacking the basket like, he's, like he used to. He's not playing defense like he used to. And everyone that sees it knows that LeBron's time is coming to an end. His greatness will not last forever. Beloved, you don't ever have to worry that Christ's kingdom is going to do that. Christ's kingdom is not like that. It has no expiration date. It's not some flash in the pan or some passing fad. No, 10,000 years from today, millennia upon millennia, Christ will continue to reign supreme. So it doesn't matter As you observe this world, as you look at your life, it doesn't matter how dark the circumstances of your life may be. It doesn't matter how discouraging or distressing or suffocating the difficulties that you experience are. It doesn't matter how much dissension or division or corruption or moral degradation or opposition surrounds the church of Christ. His kingdom is unshakable, it's immovable, and it is eternal, and it will go on forever and ever and ever. There is no end to the kingdom of Christ. And there is a day coming, HKC, when this king will return for his people. And on that day, his supremacy and his authority and his power and his greatness will be acknowledged by all creation. And his kingdom will finally be established once and for all in the new heavens and new earth. And in the ages to come, every single one in his kingdom will reign with him forever. So as you look at your life, as you look at all the things that could potentially discourage you and bring depression and frustrate you and anger you, you look at your life, you look at the circumstances, you watch the news, you experience all the conflict within and without, you remember that that is where your life is headed, I'm not just thinking about next year. I'm not thinking about 10 years from now. I'm not just thinking about retirement and enjoying my my, my 401k or whatever it might be, my Roth R A or my beach house. I'm thinking about 10,000 years from today. I am thinking about a millennia upon millennia from now. That is where I am headed. That's where you're headed, HKC. And that is where your hope must be in Christ, and in his kingdom. Isaiah says that this is all dependent on you. You must bring this about. You must work hard and rack your brain and do all the necessary things to work this together. Is that what Isaiah says? No, not at all. So don't live like that. Isaiah says the zeal of the Lord will do this. It's a really interesting term. The zeal it means jealousy. God is jealous for his glory in your life. Do you know that? God is jealous for his glory in your life. In your work, in your marriage, in your singleness, in your parenting, God is jealous for his glory in our lives, in our churches, and in this world. And he yearns with a fierce, unwavering zeal to save all his people, to magnify his king, and to establish his kingdom forever. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Trust in Christ and live for his kingdom. Father, we pray that you would do only what your spirit can do to help us to trust in your king and to live every day of our lives for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.